Dosed Fam. It's a Wednesday. December 21st, almost Christmas. Got one more episode for you in 2022. It's one o'clock on the West Coast. We're live. With Abby Martin. What's up, Mike? Uh, not much. Just holiday stress, you know. Holiday stress, the war on Christmas, you know. <laughs> waging, busy waging a war on Christmas. <laughs> There's a lot going on, guys. Um, I hope all of you are doing well. We wanted to give you this episode today because it's something that we've been wanting to do for a long time. Since I've the covered, beginning. Since the beginning. I've covered bees a lot on Breaking the Set. Uh, oh, and uh, I've been wanting to do it again because it's just kind of was in piecemeal different, you know, elements of bees and mostly focusing on colony collapse stuff. And this is bees are so fascinating that we wanted to give a real, real deep dive here. Um, thank you for joining us, everyone. Welcome to Toast. One of the most psychedelic living things has to be bees. First, they are only one of the few super organisms which have a kind of collective consciousness, with millions of individuals acting as one unit with complex behavior and communication. The ants, bees, wasps, and termites are among the most socially advanced non-human organisms, but they also construct geometric structures the kind of thing you see while you're tripping, bees innately create. Bee behavior is so mind-blowing that it's used as the basis for research in cybernetics, as technology works to mimic their powers of distributed intelligence. But they're also vital to life as we know it. Successful on every continent but Antarctica, bees are the engine of pollination. Bees pollinate one in three mouthfuls we eat, and without bees, entire ecosystems and food sources would collapse. That's a real danger, as bee colonies themselves are collapsing because of climate change and the toxins of capitalism. Bottom line, we need to save the bees, and make more of them. That's why I'm excited to have someone who decided to do his small part. In fact, right now I'm drinking a cup of tea, which has a big spoonful of honey from my friend's bee Hive, uh, our dear friend Chris. Hello, Chris. Welcome to Dost. Hey, well, thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, man? How's it going? Great. Uh, well, this is very exciting uh, for me because <laughs> uh, not only have you never been on a podcast before, but uh, you've been a longtime listener of our content, but most importantly, my friend for over 20 years and Abby's friend for, you know, maybe close to 10 years. Uh, Chris and I went to high school together. We were friends in high school, then became closer friends after high school. Uh, I think you first met Abby back when we were both in the wedding party of our friend Jason uh, many, yeah, many years ago. Wedding. Yeah. Um, and then you were the one who first or, or, so we were introduced to your bees uh, when we were staying with you in Colorado back in 2019. Uh, you put us in 
some bee suits, showed us around your hive, uh, introduced us to your queen, took us on a walk through your epic flower garden that you have constructed in your yard. And uh, for years, we've been sustaining ourselves on the jars of honey that you send us from all your harvests. They're very thick, yeah. rich, delicious honey, Chris. Uh, I remember <laughs> after the first time I gave you some, like, it was probably maybe two weeks later. And you guys were like, oh, that was the best honey ever. So I had to get more in the mail for you. So it's, it's a pleasure to, to give you guys honey. I think, was that like your first batch that we got too? Like when you first started uh, being? I think that I might have been about like three years in at that point. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, but I am, I, I have been lucky. They say you don't get honey on your first year, but um, I'm about six or seven years in and I've gotten a little bit of honey each year um, to the point now where I'm getting anywhere from... I'd say about 10 to 20 gallons per year. Jesus Ooh. Christ. That's yeah. Little, yeah. That's all a little from, more right? than a little bit. Now that I know <laughs> yeah, how I mean, much I'm it a... takes for these poor bees to make just a tablespoon of honey, Christ almighty. Yeah, seriously. I think one bee, it's something like they, they in their lifespan, they make like one sixteenth or one eighth of a teaspoon. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Something like so that. how many bees died to make your <laughs> yeah, 20 how, gallons? How oh, many bees? It's a bee genocide over in your garden, Chris, just to make this goddamn honey for the consumers. Well, she does lay in, in her prime. The queen lays about 1,500 eggs per day. In the middle of the summer, so if you do Dose. see some dead bees, like you're you're a okay. Oh, oh my god! Cool. Yeah, that's the thing is they're a super organism, so the individual is meaningless. Correct. Yeah, that's. I was just reading that too. It's just like don't be alarmed at dead bees. It's like really, <laughs> I, I still am. I can't help it. Um, but fun fact for all the dosed heads listening: we actually were all together when we came up. With the concept for the show, Chris, if you remember correctly, we were in Joshua Tree together, and we were brainstorming the name, the concept, the artists, uh, looking at drafts of all the artwork, kind of funny beginning drafts there, um, bouncing ideas off of you and your wife. In a lot of ways, you birthed dose, dosed with us, my friend. <laughs> well, that's very generous, I'd say, <laughs> but we, uh, we were there. You guys introduced us to the concept of the show, and... Uh, yeah, I thought it was amazing from day one, and uh, I've been pondering about dosed moments of my own since then. Do you have any? And I've got—I don't know if I have like one big one, but I've got a, a, a handful of little ones, kind of just you know that affect your life long term. You don't realize it at the time, but uh, most pertinent to the topic at hand, I'd say the moment that I got into—I I wouldn't say I got into beekeeping, but what led me down this path is. My wife, Stephanie, was uh, reading the, her deodorant uh, label and just basically seeing, like, all the chemicals and everything in there. And then soon she, you know, ordered all natural, you know, deodorant. And that got me in tune into what I put in my own body. So since then, I, I'm an avid label checker all the time. Um, but that kind of got me into gardening and growing things and then you know sooner or later what's the next step we were going to do chickens although we're not zoned for them here where we're at in lakewood colorado um so i was like what's the next best thing um uh beekeeping so that's how it all started was uh just seeing her read the label of a deodorant <laughs> that's like a full-time job reading labels i mean there's like a million things <laughs> yeah. that are just indistinguishable you're like what is this yeah. i mean yeah. unless you unless you make your own food there's no label yeah on right that. there you go 
Just make it all out of beeswax and honey. <laughs> and dead bees. It's a honey diet. <laughs> um, well, you dosed us on bees a few years ago. It was really fun to put on that suit and dig in there in the hive. I've never done anything like that. I've always wanted to. Um, and we're so happy again, as Mike said, this is your first time ever on a podcast. We're... Um, we are breaking that cherry for you. We're popping your podcast and, uh, cherry. Just so people know, when we were in the bee suits, Chris, you were not in a bee suit. Uh, you were just in short sleeves, sticking your hand in the hive. You had the head thing on, obviously, because yeah, you I can't just, really get stung really, in the eye. That's like the one thing that you can't have happen. Or a, Yeah, you don't want the eye. You don't want the throat. You don't want right. the mouth. Yeah. But yeah, they're they're depending on what kind you have, depending on the temperament of your hive, of your colony, um, they're 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 pretty chill. Um, we we'll get into the different types of bees, the different breeds and whatnot. Which ones are a little more aggressive and and whatnot. But yeah, we have Italians, so they're they're pretty chill. So that day, you know, you could open open the hive and kind of tell what kind of temperament they have that day. So that day, I kind of felt like okay, we're good, we're good. I just had that that mesh cloth over my head. Right, and uh, actually, I think that you did get stung while we were there. Did so I? Don't yeah. Don't you be did. too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Don't be too confident there. You, they stung you, my friend. Although it was um, like, uh, <laughs> it was towards the end when you told us you you were going to start getting stung. Yeah, you, you were. were just, you could tell from the right. bee behavior. You were like, guys, we got to wrap this up because they're they're getting ready to start stinging. <laughs> That's right. You're able. Yeah, I was able to hear the difference in their in their pitch. Uh, oh, you can tell when they're when they're done. You know, when they're sick of you, they they let you know. So. I'm super happy to have you on. One thing I hope people take away from the episode is not just hearing some dosed facts and having a deeper appreciation and understanding of bees, but but feel like they can do what you have done, which is start their own hive in their own backyard if they have the means and space to do so, Chris, because it is such a crucial component to really, you know, fighting back against what is uh, what is killing off all the bees. And it's also just a really cool thing to do. It's a cool hobby. Um, and it's very fruitful as, as you've shown, you can produce a lot of awesome stuff. Um, and it's just a really rewarding experience all around. Um, I, it's funny. It's like, people are so terrified of bees. You know, I, I've never been stung by a bee. Wait, you've um, never been, stung I've by never a been bee? stung by a bee. And so there's always this looming thought like, oh, am I allergic? What's going to happen if I do get stung? But bees are just so such beautiful, fascinating creatures. It's funny that there's such a fear of them because of just that that idea the that sting. you're yeah like the sting i mean i wonder even what what percentage of people are even like allergic to bees it's probably like so small chris yeah i mean <laughs> just it, this was a is, fact that it, i wasn't you know i don't know prepared for. Head, but, uh, as long as you have a local reaction if you get stung and that reaction just you know stays put if if by chance you get stung in the arm and then all of a sudden your throat starts uh, swelling up, that's Ooh. that's that's not good. So you definitely want to uh, seek medical attention at that point. But uh, yeah, you're right. It is it's super rewarding once you do all the homework. Once you, I mean, they do their own thing out there. You're mm. you're you're kind of just um, manipulating them here and there into doing what you want them to do. Uh, but on overall they they you know they they survive in the wild so they really don't need need us but the key is to um do it responsibly there you can have a hive everyone can get into this um and have a hive in their backyard no problem uh, of course there's local laws that you definitely want to check into you want to check with your neighbors you know see about <laughs> allergies right. check with the pets um mm-hmm. 
Uh, the neighbors are really cool, especially if you give them honey every year. Uh, they're they're more than happy to have uh, hives in their neighborhood. But um, I forgot where I was going there. Do you um do you remember the movie The Bees from 1978? No, I do oh, not. Man, I should do watch that shit. Oh yeah, that? it scared the hell. It made me scared of bees. I saw it when I was a kid. It's just uh Oh, it's like a horror movie, but bees just start taking over like the whole earth. They like overpopulate. And so like everyone's house is just full of bees and like people like wake up in the morning and their entire room is just all bees. They scared the <laughs> shit out of me. I have a, <laughs> I could play the trailer. I just think but... of, I mean, I just think of the wicker man with Nicolas Cage. I mean, like not the bees, not the bees <laughs> with all the bees in his little, little thing. Um, oh yeah. One other thing about the stinging is that, you know, that's, everyone's like scared of, um, scared of bees but yeah. like apparently bees can smell if you're scared kind of like a dog like they can tell your fear pheromone so i don't know if that makes them more likely to sting you right. or like pursue you but like the fact that that bees know when you're scared of them like makes them a little bit scarier in a way right right they do yeah they do sense pheromones um and the main thing that 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 they do is if one of them is in distress like one of the one of the worst situations not the worst situations but if you get one stuck in your hair um, you can hear it freaking out and it's obviously it's close to your ear. So it starts buzzing at a higher, a higher pitch, sends out pheromones. Uh, so the other bees around it can, will smell those pheromones. And then basically they, it puts them in attack mode if one of them in, is in distress. Do they so yeah, come they're very, to help attack. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. I've, I've been in that situation where they, I've, you know, been chased around my yard a couple times, <laughs> uh, just, you know, looking like a crazy person. But, um, yeah, overall, they're, they're, they're pretty docile as long as you, you know what you're doing and you're not, you're not really messing with them. Once it, it, there's the, the bottom boxes, um, of the hive, they're, they're, those are the brood chambers. That's where they, where the queen stays. Uh, she lays all her eggs down there the uh, you keep putting boxes they're called supers honey supers on top um they don't really care when you're messing with their honey once you get down into the brood chambers and you mess with their babies that's where they start to get mm. upset at you um as you know as they should right what, what is that what is that what is it oh no not the bees <laughs> not the bees ah! oh, my eyes Could you hear? Could you hear that, Chris? No, I didn't. Oh, it's we played the Nicolas Cage. Game. Well, it's just so funny. No, because it's, uh, it, Nicolas Cage is like, I love him as an actor, but in that movie, he's overacting so much. It's like the one where he just keeps punching women in the trailer. Remember, like someone did like a cut where he just keeps punching all these women all the in the Wicker Man. Yeah. <laughs> they're these... bad. They're bad though. Right. Like I mean, cult yeah, it's just, and then it's like the special effects are so bad you can tell it's not even bees, but he's just like. <laughs> So overacting. Um, one dose fact that I learned from doing some research for this episode is that the honeybee is the only insect that makes food that humans can eat. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and it's delicious, too. <laughs> All these other insects are worthless vermin. And also it's it's like very, you know, good for you. It's like full of stuff that humans need, but also like for preservation, it's important because like bacteria, they're so sugary, like bacteria, oh, like yeah. can't even deal with breaking it down. And oh so yeah. You can like, just, can like just stay for Yeah. Can't you just forever, like put right? something in a jar of honey and it'll like keep it safe? Yeah. It stays forever. Apparently there's, there's like Egyptian tombs with honey in it from thousands of years ago. So, uh, 
Yeah, it's and essentially what we're eating is is kind of gross, but it's it's bee vomit, really. Mm-hmm. They go around collecting nectar. They go around collecting uh, pollen and all this other stuff. They have uh, different enzymes and different glands in their in their foreheads, actually, and they. Um, they end up mixing all this stuff and then they basically just like spit it back into the cells. And what we're eating is, is, uh, was once inside of a bee. And they eat it too. Like that's what honey is. It's like beef. They do. Yeah. They, they, the reason they make it is for winter storage. So they're collecting the whole year. They're obviously eating the whole year. Um, as a beekeeper, one of your uh, prime responsibilities is to, is to feed your bees, is to like supplement their, their, you know, nutrition and whatnot. So there's different pollen patties and different things that you can feed them. And they, they do uh, respond well to certain essential oils. Um, so you do want to feed your bees to give them the best nutrition possible. But, um, the ones in, you know, if, if, if you see a hive out in the tree trunk, they're obviously just eating their, their own honey. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what they do. They store it up for the whole summer and then, uh, and then they eat it over winter while they're 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 in there. But um, as yeah, because at a certain you, a certain point they like stop leaving the hive. They just like hunker down. They hunker down. They don't hibernate. Um, a lot of people think they do. Um, they kind of just uh, stay put. They they generate their own heat. So if you've ever seen a a bee like on a flower or somewhere, then its its body is kind of like you know like an accordion, kind of opening and closing. It's like it's it's a uh, rear end kind of. It's generating its own heat. So, uh, they usually do that in the mornings when they, you know, they, I call it the front porch of the, of the hive. They, they kind of go out, they get some sunlight and then they, they, you know, they accordion their bodies and then they go do their thing. They warm their engines uh, up. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So what they do in the winter is they, they keep the inside of the hive. Um, I've been in, in the classes that you take, they, they tell you they keep it around like 85 degrees in there. Um, I'm sure on the colder nights it gets a little chillier in there, but um, but yeah, they 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 basically just hunker down for the winter, uh, eat what they have to, and just keep keep the queen warm is is the is the whole purpose. Going back to what you said about honey and the preservational um, characteristics of honey, could you replace like the Jurassic Park mosquito in the amber with just like a honey and put it in a little honey jar and then. You know, you might, you might be able to, (laughs) as long as there's, you know, as long as there's no, you know, bacteria or anything on the mosquito itself, I think it would, I think it would stay, you know, in the honey. That's wild, man. You know, the, uh, you were saying about how they like keep the queen warm. Um, this may not happen in like, I get probably, I don't know if this happens in your, in your hive, like the wooden hives or just in like the, the ball hives they make, but don't they also like do really complex things to regulate the temperature other than just like their own body heat thing. Like, don't they like change airflow and all these things to like, keep it comfortable for them? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. There's, um, they do make another thing called, it's called propolis. It's basically, it's, it's, I call it bee glue. So they get it from, um, they, they take some tree sap and they, they use those same glands on their heads to make different, you know, different things. And propolis is basically, they, they glue up the whole hive, any, any opening that they don't want. Oh, cool. They, oh. they kind of just glue it all up. So you, as a beekeeper, you have, it's, there's a tool called a hive tool and it's basically kind of like a, like a, like a tire iron or something like that, that you kind of have to pry everything apart when you do your inspections. Um, but yeah, they, you can literally drill holes in the side of your hive. And if they want that hole there, they'll keep it. If they don't, they'll plug it up with, um, with this propolis stuff. And I've, I've been in my hives multiple times and you'll see a little hole in there. And on the, on the inside, there's like a cone of, 
of propolis. And what that is, is they're directing the airflow like a certain way throughout the hive. Oh, so they're not even um, closing the hole. They're just like pointing it in the yeah, direction sometimes they, want they it do. to go. Sometimes they close it. Sometimes they, they just like, you know, make these little cones. Uh, in the dead of the summer, there's a, um, a behavior called bearding. And what that is, it's, if it's too warm inside the hive, they kind of all, not all of them, but a lot of them will come out of the hive. And basically it looks like your, your, your hive has a beard because it's just covered in, in bees and what they're doing. And if you kind of look at it up close, um, they're strategically situated and they, they direct airflow in these certain ways. And you can see which ones are flapping their wings harder, which ones are flapping their wings, you know, slower. You can tell which way that they're, they're, you know, bringing in air to cool the hive down. It's, it's, it's really interesting. It's amazing how self-sufficient they are and how they can, I mean, other than of course, accumulating pollen that they are just totally self-sufficient with the way that they produce their food source and then can do things like this, like create different um, things that they can use. I mean, different like things that they create themselves, which is, what was it called again? Propoline? Uh, Propolis. Propolis. Wow. Um, And I want to get into how they actually build a colony because this is this is really interesting and it and it kind of contradicts this flat box beekeeping method that I don't really understand. I want you to explain how that is the best way to mimic their colonies when all we know is that kind of hexagonal shape that they create out in the wild. Why is it so useful to do the box structure when you are beekeeping and talk about how why and how they build this hexagonal um the hive out in, in so, the wild. So there's there's a, a couple different types of hives. There's um, most commonly in the U.S. the box one they, the, that you're referring to is kind of it kind of looks like a like a filing cabinet. It's called <laughs> right. the Lang the Langstroth hive. Um, that's mostly what we use here in the U.S. I know there's also top bar hives. Uh, there's the flow hive. I'm sure you've heard of the flow hive. And and I think in Europe they use one called the national hive, which I'm really not too sure. I don't know much about. Um, but the Langstroth hive, uh, the reason it's so popular, it's it's just really easy for beekeepers. Um, all of the space in there, all the, the there's frames that kind of sit in these grooves in the hive, and basically it gives them the perfect amount of space that they can walk around in. Well, one they they build out the wax to the you know to as much as they can. But they leave, it's about three-eighths of an inch. I think between three-eighths and five-eighths of an inch, they, they leave that, like, empty. So it's called bee space. So it's basically, like, the perfect amount of space for them to, like, walk around in. And if they need to flap their wings to cool things off, they can do that. But the Langstroth hive is just, um, it's easy to get, get into. Um, it's, it's all their comb is on these, these wooden, or they make plastic frames. So it's, it's easy to do inspections. You can pull the frames out very easily um uh it's yeah it's just it's just very kind to beekeepers uh it's mm-hmm. you go in there you want to you want to look you, when you go in there you want to do your inspections what you're doing is you're looking one you want to find the queen um which you 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 mark her with like a little uh, non-toxic like little chalk marker on her back on her thorax so when you do go in there you can find her really easily um but yeah, you're you're reading her brood brood cycle. So basically, all the responsibilities that you have as a beekeeper, they're just a lot easier with with the mm-hmm. with the Langstroth. So they hive. can they can make do in any shape. That's why bees are like pests to some because they'll just like get in your 
uh, some part of your house and just start making a hive. Like they can work with whatever space, you know. Yeah, mostly. absolutely. They'll they can get it. They're like you'll see it. I don't know. I follow, follow a lot of beekeeping stuff on Reddit and all that. So you see a lot of videos of uh, people opening up this, you know, sheetrock in their house, and there's just there's just comb and comb and comb. Nice. So yeah, they'll, get they'll a honey build harvest. Whatever space. <laughs> they got the honey <laughs> yeah. without the work. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of times if that's, you know, if any of your listeners have a, have that issue, uh, there, there's a, a national bee hotline. I don't have it on the cover, <laughs> but uh, it, it, gets you in to- it, it gets you in touch with beekeepers or it, it puts beekeepers on the list. Right. And one by one, they get called and they're like, oh, there's a, there's a swarm here. If you want to go get it, you know, you go get it and, you know, you get it for free. And then the, the, uh, the people, you know, with the infestation, they don't have to pay anything. Wait, to get how, it do you out collect, like how do you collect a bee swarm? You, you basically all you have to do is find the queen. As long as you get the queen, they'll follow you or they'll what? follow the queen. So you yeah, just, she puts off a pheromone. That's like, you know, those videos when they, you know, someone is just like, has their neck covered in bees. Yeah. Like in the new something. jackass when, uh, his <laughs> yeah, private parts are covered. Exactly. They just put the queen on his Balls. stuff. Yeah. Then, then all the other bees <laughs> yeah. came. Yeah, and then that just attracts all the bees. They they're basically just want to keep her safe, and uh, they surround her. So as long so when you're you're collecting a swarm, you're basically uh, just trying to get the queen. Uh, what a lot of beekeepers do, um, if they're up in a branch, it's really easy. All you do how to do is like chop the branch off and hold the whole ball in your hand uh, with by the branch, and then just like shake that into a into an empty box and into an empty hive. Um, some people use, if it's more intricate, they, you can kind of jimmy up, uh, like a wet dry vac and in the hose, you can kind of put a screen in the hose and put like a big Tupperware box in there. So before it goes through the whole like vacuum mechanism, it collects all the bees into that box. Um, so that's, that's a common way that people collect it. And then as long as they get, you know, as long as they get the queen, they're, they're on their way and all the others will follow. I prefer the, the stick method, yeah. with just a big old ball, like yeah. a, or just finding the Winnie queen the Pooh and style. then just like walking away <laughs> and then the whole swarm just follows you. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, right. I mean, it does make it less scary <laughs> when you see people that are covered in bees. Cause you're like, oh, they're just like, they don't even care about the person. They're just like swarming ar- around the queen to like keep her warm, you know? Yeah. Um, although Steve-O did end up getting stung a lot when they put the queen on his people. Yeah, I would imagine. But, um, yes. So, yeah, I guess they, they they can make a home anywhere except for the human body. Um, but, you know, one, I do, I do want to get into the different, <laughs> like, the, the different, yeah, uh, the different roles of the bees and all the different jobs and stuff. But one quick fact I saw about the hexagons that were interesting because, like, you know, that's the honeycomb. Everyone knows the honeycomb shape. Uh, you know, it's that hexagonal shape. So apparently the reason they make it is because the the hexagon is like the most efficient shape that exists because uh it's space saving and also it can support a ton of weight so they can make these little thin hexagons they have they don't have any empty spaces it's it's very efficient in terms of space saving but then it can hold all of the weight of these combs being like full of honey and stuff it's just like a super good shape so obviously some like evolutionary natural selection thing that there may have been a bee that tried out a triangles and it didn't work out uh but yeah hexagon is just the in in addition to in in addition to that they also use the shape and i don't know exactly how they do this but they do this thing in in the hive called a waggle dance yes and one bee will uh a forager will be out and they'll find like a good a good food source or a a water source something like that they'll come back to the hive and they kind of clear a little space around on on these hexagonal cells they'll do a dance 
And what they're doing is they're telling the other bees where to go get that food. So they use the, like I said, I don't know exactly how this works, but they use the angles of the hexagonal shapes to triangulate the location of the sun, the location of the hive, and the location of the food. And that's one way they communicate, uh, you know, directions. So I I knew a little bit about the waggle dance as like a complex way of explaining where the food source is, but I had no idea they actually used the hexagon. They like stand on the hexagon and use that as like the compass and then put themselves as like the compass needle. Kind it's a of solar and gravitational angles that they're calculating through their waggle dances on the hex That's, hexagonal. Shapes. I didn't realize yeah. it was on the ship. So the it's shape like if you take like an aerial view, you can actually like ratio out what they're like based on the the amount of time or like the the actual angle of the waggle dance, and then plus the length of time that of they're the doing waggles. it right yeah of the waggles so the length of the waggles is like how far you need to go mm-hmm. it's communicating distance and then like the direction they're pointing their waggle is like yeah how I, I don't know the details of it but yeah that's that's the idea and it, it's it's wild you can i i've sit out there and just like you know during an inspection i'll see it happening and then i'll just kind of stop everything i'm doing just to watch this waggle dance and try to see you, you can see how the other bees are kind of like clearing way and they're responding yeah. to it. It's, it's really cool. So if you put a bee on a surface that had no hexagon, they wouldn't be able to understand the waggle dance because they need the I don't hexagon think they, as like reference. They probably wouldn't even do the waggle dance. Right. Yeah. That's they're so robotic. They're like, this doesn't unlock the thing in my brain to do the dance. There's, yeah. there's so much more about bees and the way that they communicate and stuff. But first let's explain like, the difference between bees because when you when i was with you and you and stephanie were talking to me about how a queen is developed and what the drones do and all the different roles of the bees is just so mind-blowing as well i guess let's start with the queen what how did how is she created so she's um just basically when a queen is laid a queen obviously lays an egg and um I guess before we get into into this, uh, let me explain um, swarming. Okay. Sure. So, if you've seen a, a a ball of bees in a tree, uh, what they're they've left their hive. So what they did, what the queen did, is that she was probably about a week prior. She was in a functioning hive, a, a well functioning hive. Uh, once it's they once they kind of run out of room, it comes springtime, and she knows that this hive is doing well. She'll lay. She'll, she'll lay eggs. She'll obviously she, she's always laying eggs, um, and part of the collective mindset of the whole hive is is you think the queen does all the decision making, but no, it's the workers. It's the collective uh, brain of the workers nice. that they will. So they'll basically turn, you know, say seven or ten of those eggs into a new queen. How they do that is they feed it they feed it royal jelly instead of feeding it pollen and the and the regular stuff that the other workers get as as larvae. So they basically pack royal jelly into this. They it's like a it ends up looking like a peanut. It sits at the bottom of the frame. What is royal jelly? And royal jelly is is um, it's it's just another substance that they make. Uh, but it's and specifically it's, for like nutrients to form a queen. Exactly. Is it's, it just like a thicker queen... honey? I, I still yeah, can what the fuck it? is it? Yeah, it's, why don't we a, have it's, any? It's like a creamy substance. It's really hard to harvest. I've never done it. People do it. And it is a common it's it's it it's in makeup. It's they, oh, they use what? it in a That's lot of creepy. 
Yeah, just like kind of how they use like whale blubber and makeup. They use royal jelly and makeup too. But I guess it's like revitalizing for the skin and mm-hmm. and all that jazz. But just a way uh, to yeah, charge someone a, a lot of money. Yeah, right. This yeah, is royal yeah, jelly. Much. It's very hard to get. Therefore, <laughs> this is a hundred dollars. So you need several eggs to manifest the queen, as well as this special substance to feed those little larvae, right? Correct. Yeah, you don't need a ton. You don't need like seven. You need. You really only need one. But okay. uh, once once your current queen goes into swarm mode, when she's like, okay, my hive is operating great, she's going to lay eggs. The the workers are going to, the nurse bees are going to turn some of those eggs into new queens. At that point, uh, the queen basically takes half of the bees in the hive and leaves. Oh. And then basically the current hive has, say, we'll say seven, has seven new queens being raised waiting to hatch and then whoever whoever hatches first is pretty much the new queen um there are a lot of interesting uh facts here uh so yeah so i don't really don't know how half the bees take allegiance to the old queen and leave and half of them stay i don't know how they decide that but um they'll raise these new queens and the first one to to like i said the first one to hatch will be the new queen and she'll go around and she'll do this thing. It's called piping, or they call it tooting or quacking. And I've only heard it once uh, in my six, six or seven years. But she's basically, and there's there's new research out on this as well. She at at first they used to think that if there was more than one queen hatching at the same time, um, they 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 basically pipe or they quack and they make this little tooting noise. And they used to think that it was them like a battle cry. Because basically they're going to fight to the death. But if if one hatches before all the others, that one it starts it starts tooting. And what the new research says is that it's tooting to get the workers on its side. And it's basically saying, "Hey, I'm the I'm a queen. I'm here. I'm the new queen of this hive. You know, take my side. And then we're going to go around and we're going to sting all these other to be queens and kill them while they're before they even hatched." So, so how does it they just kill so, them by stinging them? <laughs> That's how they kill the other queens. The what? They sting through the cell, and and while it's it, you know the other queen is probably only a day behind, um, whatever stage they're at, it, they're just getting stung through their little uh, their little cell, which it kind of looks like a peanut. So they know what's what. Um, so yeah, they just go around, and they the queen will go around and then kill the kill all the to be queens and then she's the she's the new queen does the new queen know that she's the first one hatched or is it just something that every queen will automatically do when they're born is she like oh shit i'm the only one i gotta start tooting or is it just like (laughs) the default you toot when you're born i'm pretty sure they just toot when they're born because it's like a it's probably in their dna and they're like okay i just got to get this whole hive on my side and kill the others yeah i guess i my guess would why they've just exactly half the hive will just leave with decide to live with one queen it's probably like built into their brain that when the queen swarms and leaves that like 50 50 like each bee will have a 50 percent chance of deciding to go with the queen it's like a flipping a coin and then yeah with those odds like about half all the time are gonna decide to stay but that's really so then so then once they so that's how the new queen is formed and then there's all these other jobs i mean you have your queen your drone and your worker and then among the workers you have like three basic jobs your forager your nurse and your guard so you wait wanna... and wait and really quickly how why is the queen so big is it just because of the royal jelly thing that it's like been fed this weird delicacy 
Yes, and the reason she needs to be bigger is because she develops, uh, I forget the number, but it's like something like 14 egg-laying ducts on each side of her. Mm. So she has a bunch of just like, you know, extra anatomy that other bees. So they're laying eggs from that many places at once. They're laying like multiple eggs at a time from different like glands. (laughs) Oh my God. Every second, she lays one almost. What? And so, but, yeah, you repeat that fact again. How many eggs is she laying? Like, or how many uh, egg glands? No, I mean, in the height oh. of summer, he was like, she could. In the height lay. of summer, it was it's it's about fifteen hundred in in the height of it all. So uh, every, every day you could you you and right. and the queens take a certain amount of time to to hatch. The workers take a different amount of time, and the and the drones, which are the males, take a different amount of time. But um, and the queen mostly just hangs out in the hive unless they leave to create another hive, right? Correct. Yeah. So that one queen that laid the new queens, she takes half the bees. She goes up to a tree. They all follow her. And what they do, uh, they look, they're looking for a new place to live, uh, which is a, another time that the waggle dance, a, a different waggle dance comes into play. So they'll send, they'll be up in a tree. They send out all these scouts and they're basically looking for a new place to live. Um, Certain ones will come back and be like, oh, hey, I found this place. Oh, hey, I found this place. So what they'll do is they'll they'll create a dance to signify this location. Another bee will create a dance to signify another location. So there could be like four of those. So the whole ball is doing like four dances at one time. And then as more scouts go, you know, check out these places, they will eventually all be decide on one and then they'll all be doing one dance and as soon as that one dance starts to happen by the whole ball that that's when they leave and they just go to that place so are scouts can scouts be workers too are they because they just are specifically specifically fulfilling excuse me specifically fulfilling a function for the purpose of gaining people to get to that hive at that given time right that's that's when they turn into scouts okay yeah, they may be they may be foragers. When you see bees out, you know, honeybees, when you see honeybees out, um, you know, going from flower to flower, they've worked their way up to forager. So they start kind of as nurse bees. Uh, they get to guard bees. And then at the later stages of their life, they're foragers. Mm. So basically, like the last if in the summer, it's like the last two weeks of their lives. They they become foragers. And probably this I'm not 100 percent sure, but the scouts are probably also foragers because they might just know the lay of the land better. Whoa. So there's like a, you have like a, a life cycle that it just involves like different jobs. Like you get promoted, like, Ooh, now you're a guard and you get to stand by the opening, you know, and then yeah. before you actually get to take, and so none of them are really flying until they get to forager. Until stage. two weeks of their life. Yeah. Walk the last two weeks of their life. So walk us through those stages again. Like, so first you're the nurse bee. So you just nurse yeah, the, you the hive and so you're basically there's this, there's when you're inside the hive, you you'll you'll see the 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 comb that's that's covered with wax. That's basically the brood. So there's the foragers will come back and empty like all the pollen and all the nectar that they get into these into these cells. So basically the nurse bees are just kind of organizing all the all, all the pollen and basically shoving pollen into those cells and cleaning out the, the cells and making it ready for the, the queen to lay an egg in those cells. So they're kind of just, they pack it full of food. And once it's all clean and packed full of food, then the queen will come along and, and she'll lay an egg. And, um, and then they'll eventually cover 
that cell with wax, breathable wax. That wax will have like little pieces of grass or little pieces of wood in it. Mm-hmm. So it's breathable. Um, and then so when that larvae, when the egg hatches into a larva, uh, it's got something to eat in there. So the nurse bees basically um, just take care of the brood. Cool. And then it and then so after how much time does the nurse bee become another bee? Another kind. I of think thing. it. I'm pretty sure it depends on the the time of year. In the in the summer, uh, workers only last their lifespans maybe about a month. Um, so probably only a week or two. In the winter, she'll lay your queen will lay her her winter bees in the fall, and they kind of last. They last like three months or maybe a little more to, to get them to the spring. Um, they're not doing as much work over the winter, so they're not expending as much energy. But uh, within those within their, their designated roles, the workers in the summer, they probably only have that role for like a week or two. That's cool. And then, so then they're guards and what are they doing as guards and like, what are they defending against? And like, how are they, how are they doing that defense? So they, they'll sit on the front porch or any opening of the, of the hive. And they basically, you can watch it. You can sit out and watch the hive and you know, you see all these bees coming back in. And you can see the guard bees, they kind of go up to all the bees and they kind of, you know how ants touch each other on like mm-hmm. on the antenna just to communicate. They they kind of do that. They walk around back oh. and forth trying to touching all the other bees to see if they're, uh, I'm imagining to see if they're part of their own colony. Um, I've got three right now. I've got three hives and they're all directly right next to each other. So, and they all know where they're going. They do like orientation flights when they leave. So I think I'm pretty sure it has a lot to do with like the electromagnetic um, orientation flights. What is that? So basically before they leave the hive in the morning, the they'll warm up on the front porch. And these are the foragers. They'll kind of warm up on the front porch. They'll, they'll lift off. And then they kind of do like figure eights in front of the in front of the hive um, and what they're doing is kind of just, um, situating themselves in the world and just like, no, th- that's, it's like their GPS. Like they know to come back to that place right there. So I, I'm pretty sure it has something to do with the electromagnetic fields of the earth. Um, could have something to do. I'm sure the scent of it, of their own hive has a lot to do with it. Um, but yeah, the guard bees are basically just, uh, you know, checking that no other bees come in their hive to like rob them and also like wasps. And so mice. the, so the three hives that are all next to each other, they don't like, they all go into their own respective hives. You know, they're not like, oops, oh, I walked in the wrong one, you know, like and <laughs> yeah. they're just, yeah. they're all keeping to themselves and they're, and they don't really interact at all. No, they, I, I feed them out front. Sometimes I'll, you know, you supplement them with the sugar water and, um, you know, they're all right next to each other. They're all very peaceful, but yeah. they don't go into each other's hives. It's funny, like sometimes one bee will, it'll kind of like fall in the sugar water or I'll, and it's like, you know, covered in the sticky substance mm-hmm. and there's no way it can fly. It, it What it needs is, you know, the other bees to clean it off. So I'll, t- I'll pick this bee up and it's like I have a 33% chance of knowing where it goes. <laughs> I'll put it, you know, if you put it in the wrong hive or I'll put it on the front porch and if it's not part of the hive, they'll kick it out and it'll just die. But, I, you know, what's one bee in the whole scheme of things? But, yeah, it's a fun little game. But you play. try so to pick, you try to guess the right, the right hive and then if it is yeah, the right hive, then they'll clean it? it. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they, yeah. And then four or five bees will come along and then like you can see their little uh, proboscis come out and they're just like sucking, uh, sucking the, the sugar oh, water whoa. off. It. So it's pretty, it's like... pretty neat. Oh, so it's like a game. You could be like, okay, are they going to lick it or are they going to like boot it? <laughs> yeah. So what about if there are invasive, like, Local wasp. like, yeah, wasp trying to get in that hive? What do they do? What do the guards do? 
Um, so if it happens to get in, uh, one cool thing that you'll see as you're doing inspections, you know, the top is off. So a lot of times, like the, the smell of the honey will just come out the top while you're doing an inspection. And a lot of times wasps will just kind of like f- do a flyover. Um, all the bees that are on the frames, uh, you know, in the hive, they kind of, it looks like the wave at like a sports mm-hmm. arena. And they're basically just like trying to reach up and just like grab this thing, whatever it is flying over them. Cause what they do, their defense mechanism is they, they, they know if they sting, they're going to die because their, their stingers are barbed. And once they get pulled out, then their intestines come out and they die. So what they do is, um, if anything gets in their hive, they all surround it and then they, they basically heat up their bodies and they basically cook the intruder alive. Nice. What? Um, so yeah, so they that's, create that's, like an oven the in there to, to try to just heat the wasp without actually yeah the wasp it. it could be a mouse it could be any anything in there um, they'll just literally heat it heat it up and that's and that's uh, one big thing about this whole murder hornet conversation is that um, you guys know about them right yeah yeah uh, I think I know yeah, the, yeah, I well, know the propaganda yeah yeah yes is there some <laughs> truth underlying the, this myth or is it a myth or they're, they're, I, I think they kind of renamed them to like the giant northern wasp <laughs> hornet nowadays. Uh, but anyway, the, the honeybees in Asia know how to deal with them. So they have the same technique of heating them up and killing them. But what they do, what they do over there is they, they'll get the scout. So there'll be a murder hornet scout that's like looking for places where they can like, you know, find honey or, you know, eat bees or whatever they're, they they want to eat. So what they'll do is they'll send out one scout. If the bee, the honeybee colony doesn't kill that first scout, they're screwed because that scout's going to go back. And then all of its friends, all the murder hornet's friends are going to come back and just decimate the whole hive. So that's basically what happens in the U.S. because the U.S. honeybees or the North American honeybees, um, don't you know we haven't they haven't evolved next to these murder hornets so they don't know to get that scout yes they do know to heat things up that comes into their hive but if they don't get it on the first try then that murder hornet's going to go back and tell all his friends to come back but the the honeybees in asia have evolved next to it so they've adapted this 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 technique this behavior to be like let's kill this first one and then we're good Mm -hmm. it's amazing that they can collectively heat up without harming themselves to actually yeah. kill something like a mouse or this huge right. hornet. Cause you gotta get kind of hot. Yeah. You gotta get really fucking mouse. hot. Right. Yeah. And I, and I don't know what their tolerance is. They might have a higher tolerance to heat than, you know, some other, some of these other creatures, but that's, yeah, that's what they do. Um, one other thing I just thought of about the queen, um, is like, so the, the scenario you gave is when like the hive gets big enough and then it's time to like go and split off. Then you have, mm-hmm. like, the queen just dies, and then they need to replace the queen, and so they, you know, feed the eggs the royal jelly in the in, in the case of a queen dying. Uh, but you've also told me that there's, like, situations where the queen gets, like, overthrown because she's, like, not a good queen. Can you talk about that whole thing? Um, if there's if she's in there and she's, like, still laying eggs, they'll probably ride her out to the end. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're queenless, like you said... Um, They'll take a regular, and if there's you know new a new egg that's laid, they'll take that new egg and just basically make a new queen out of it. And oh, um, so so wait, so you're the one that overthrows the queen when you don't like the queen. Yeah, so that's one <laughs> thing that you got to do. You can I've lost, uh, I've I've lost 
I think two or three colonies over the years. And, and the reason is it's, it's it, it, when you get a queen, when you get like a born queen into your own hive, it's kind of a crapshoot whether she's going to be a really good one or a shitty one. So usually it's a mediocre one. 25% of the time it's a really good one. And 25% of the time it's, oh. a, it's a crappy one. And you know that by how she's laying eggs. If she's not laying in the proper like rainbow like pattern, um, you know, you have a shitty queen. What so, do you mean the rainbow like pattern? Um, she'll lay eggs in the cells in kind of like a rainbow shape on oh. the frame. So there'll be like a little one, a bigger one, a bigger one, a, li- a smaller one, a smaller one, a smaller one. And then it kind of repeats itself over and over again. So you can tell by the pattern that she lays in if, if you have a good queen. If she's kind of laying all over the place and there's like a, a, you know, a little one here, a big one there, a little one here, um, you probably have a bad one. So what happens is basically like the population doesn't get big enough throughout the summer. So when the winter comes, they don't have a big enough population to get them through the winter. So um, in that case, I think what I told you is that I reacted too late to it, that, you know, what I should have done is I should have gone in there midsummer and just pinched her and killed her. And then went, you can go to the beekeeping store monster and, just, and you could buy a new queen. <laughs> right. <laughs> so oh, wow. And you just put them in and they accept her. <laughs> yeah. You put her in. She'll, they'll accept her. There's, there, you know, there's situations where it doesn't, but, and there's ways to, as uh, long as there's not know, another to, queen, they'll be like, Oh, good. Well, and what queen. do they do in the interim? I mean, they see you murdering the queen and then they just let you go. And they don't, uh, yeah, they, I mean, you. they don't know. They don't care. As long as you're not, um, you know, doing anything with the brood and they and so they'll they'll chill for a minute so they care about like they don't even care about the queen they just care about the eggs yeah pretty much wow um so they'll chill they'll like sometimes uh a worker might they they call them laying workers Uh, a worker might try to be like oh hey let me try to lay some eggs (laughs) if when that happens like they come out all deformed and that's not a thing yeah you know like their 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 wings will be messed up what there's they like didn't, mutants. They didn't have the proper, you know, nutrition <laughs> to lay the eggs. So oh if there God. is like a fertile worker in there, it'll start laying. Otherwise, if they know that they're queenless, and if there is uh, an uncapped egg somewhere, they'll automatically just turn that egg into a new queen. And if the queen, time, and and the go ahead. And the queen like releases a certain pheromone that just like lets everyone know like I'm good we're all good here. Right. And it does that prevent and, and basically prevents other workers from trying to lay eggs. Right. So, if, so you're yeah. saying this is only happening if the queen is just like absent for a minute and then some idiot worker bee will try to make all these mutant bees. Yeah. If there's, if there's a, if there's a, a queen in there, they're not going to start a mutiny or anything. Yeah. Uh, but if there is, if they do know that they're queenless, um, they'll probably they they keep a couple of they call them emergency cells they're kind of like they look like the queen cells and they're like halfway started so if in case they do need to make a queen like they'll make one out of that and hopefully that there's an egg in there that they can make it if not sometimes it it works out where you know they just kind of if you don't notice it and that's one of your responsibilities as a beekeeper is to keep an eye on all this stuff and act accordingly yeah if you don't notice it you might just you, you might lose your hive over winter um but in this case, I actually, this happened to me this past summer. 
I uh, went in there, couldn't find the queen. It's super stressful when you can't find her. And uh, the picture that you guys used for the, the dosed, you know, thing. Yeah. Um, that's, you you evil. that's you in the <laughs> thumbnail. Yeah, I, just so everyone that knows. was in the middle of an inspection where I could not find the queen. I went through that hive like three <laughs> times and I couldn't find her. And I was just so pissed off. <laughs> and it's stressful. It's stressful too. But yeah, worst case scenario, you go to a store, you get a new queen and you install her. Yeah, I guess that's one way to know if the queen's in there. If you just buy a new queen and if they kill it, you're like, oh, I guess the real queen is somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah. To waste the $40, but whatever. <laughs> um, uh, we didn't talk about the drones yet. That's another one of the three jobs. Those are like, are those like the males and everyone else is a female? So, yep. Drones are the only males, uh, honeybees. Um, their prime and only responsibility is to mate with queens in the spring. Um, otherwise they come back to the hive. They just eat honey and you know, they, and there's a point in the, in the late summer and I, you, they, they teach you this in the class. I never thought I'd see it, but, um, the workers, if there's still drones around late summer, the, 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 the workers will go around and cut their wings off and basically give them the boot because all they're going to do, all the drones will do over, um, over the winter is just eat all the honey and you know, they, they need that honey. So yeah, one day my wife and I were out there, we were looking and she was like, Oh, check it out. They're kicking a, they're kicking a drone out. They're kicking a drone. And we, we call them dumb drones. Cause when you see them, they're just like bumbly and clumsy and dumb drones. But yeah, they, they, they cut their wings off and uh, sure enough, they were Whoa. like, Three three workers had one, and they just kind of just like threw her off the front porch. It was, it was pretty crazy. It's like the drunk, like like watching. Yeah, just dad. a wingless <laughs> bee rolling around on the All ground. All the sisters of the of the wife being like, "Get out of here, you slob!" Um, <laughs> whoa, uh, that's so. Crazy. But yeah, their main their their only responsibility is to. Um, I think they fly in the spring at eighteen feet in the air, mm-hmm. and the okay. So back to the whole swarming thing. When the new queen is born and she goes around and kills all the other queens, she's an, she's an unmated fertile queen right. at that point. So she needs to mate in order to be fertile for the, or in order to be able to lay eggs for the rest of her life. And queens generally last around four years. Um, so she, within the first two weeks of her life, she'll, she'll stay in the hive for like three days to kind of like let her exoskeleton harden up. And then she starts taking mate, mating flights. So she goes out and she'll fly also at 18 feet. And so it's just other so bees don't that, fly that high. Um, they usually fly as, as low as they need to. Um, right. You're supposed to put your, your, your hives on like cinder blocks. It mm-hmm. kind of raises them up. And what that does is it helps, you know, if a raccoon comes along to try to like, you know, eat bees, it's got to like stand up on its hind legs and it exposes its underbelly. Mm. And then that's where it's susceptible to bee sting. So, um, so as a beekeeper, you want to elevate your hive just a little bit. Um, it depends on local laws as well. Uh, if, for example, where I live in Lakewood, Colorado, as long as you're 25 feet into your property, you can kind of situate your hive in any direction. If you don't have that much space, what you have to do is they want you to, to put it up against a privacy fence. So when the bees come flying out, they see this this six foot privacy fence, and they think it's a, a two dimensional object. They think that fence goes on forever. So what they do <laughs> is they they go up, they fly up to about eight feet, and then they'll oh, they'll fly at eight feet until they you know find flowers on the ground to to go eat at or something. Um, but basically, what that is it's a it's a measure to protect your neighbors, uh, mm-hmm. so your neighbors you know aren't you know 
annoyed with bees flying at three feet all everywhere. Not kind of ankles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, How do they? Yeah, the, the, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say the drones and the, the, the drones will just go out and mate with the queens, and that's pretty much their only responsibility. And they life. find each other by just being at that same height. At that same height is, is where crazy. the magic happens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so I just understood the fencing you told me. So once they fly to the top of the fence, they think that that's just how high it is forever. So once they yeah. fly like how to the top of the fence, they'll stay at that level because they're like, oh, there's this big thing here. They don't realize yeah, it's they, flat. Yeah. They just, they'll be at say, let's just say eight feet. If the, if the fence is six feet, they'll just go up a little bit and then they'll just stay at that height Whoa. until they find food so or cool. water. So everyone in the to. yard, the bees not flying by them. It's flying above their heads. Yeah, except for my yard because they're mine are like two feet. <laughs> they're just in your in your <laughs> yeah, they're everywhere. Parts of your yard. How do they keep that hive clean? How is it not overrun with just bee vomit and dead bees? That's another uh, probably the nurse. It's there might there may be another um, another role in there that I'm not aware of. But they a, anything the that's cleaner. in there, they, they clean it. They clean it. There could be mold in there. Um, they'll clean it out. They'll. Uh, the the pollen patties that you feed them to supplement their nutrition it, it's kind of wrapped in wax paper um and you just throw the whole thing in there with the wax paper and all and by the time they're done eating all that stuff the wax paper will be gone so every now and again i'll see a bee and the, any bees that die inside the inside the hive they'll clean it out so that's in the in the winter that's a good sign if you do see a bunch of dead bees at like three feet in front of your hive it's a it's a good it's a sign that your bees that are alive in there are actually doing the work of cleaning their hive out. It's it's when you don't see any dead bees outside the hive, it's kind of alarming because you're like, oh, are they all in there and are they all dead kind of thing? But yeah, they just clean they clean it out. Um, that's insane. There's so many dose things that you've said so far, and I think that I want to go back to the waggle dance because it was crazy enough to learn that the how intricate the waggle dance is mathematically using the hexagonal shapes within the hive. But then you told me that there's like three other dances that they do to specify other circumstances, like cultivating bees to come find another hive. Um, what are the other dances used for? And can you explain any more of that? I'm pretty sure that they're just used to signify a location, mm-hmm. um, how they're using, you know, whether it's to like inside the hive to tell other other bees, you know, where the food is or, you know, in that circumstance when they're up in a tree and they're telling people uh, or telling other bees, you know, go check this place out. It could be a good new home. And I'm, I'm pretty sure all the dances are just to to signify location. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's other articles that talk about how they actually I mean, they they basically have constructed like words. I mean, not in the way that we use words, obviously, but the buzzing and length of the dances create a kind of like, you know, method of communicating that is just extremely intricate. Um, And then they walk through these instructions to address all of these things to direct other bees to do. Um, Another really interesting thing is that how they track what flower all these audio glitches are so yeah, crazy it, I, don't, I don't know if are you hearing that. this chris no i no, mean people I in the chat are now. definitely saying that they're hearing it i don't know if it's completely it insane um are we recording this it's by the bees. way bzz, bzz, bzz. <laughs> are we recording this separately is there any way to fix this shit before we no, upload it jesus it's, it's, man uh irregular enough where it doesn't matter that much it does matter to me um <laughs> 
I, I want this shit to be airtight, bro. Uh, yeah, so I mean, other than that, I mean, just the, the fact that they can leave like a scent on a flower, right? To signify who has been to what flower. Is that also part of you their know, pheromone? I've heard that. I don't know. I don't know a lot about that, but I have heard that. And I do know that they, they do see ultraviolet light. So that's, um, another way they find all the flowers is, you know, whatever ones are like really glowing to them, Whoa. which I've noticed that a lot of the, like the, the purple flowers, a lot of the, like yeah, smaller flowers, they're more attracted to those. Um, not, not a hundred percent sure of, of the scent, but I'm sure they do that. But how do they know that it's not like overrun, like all the pollen is gone? I mean, there has to be some sort of factor that goes into that, that they've like taken it already right I yeah mean, i'm not well i know i know flowers are constantly making it mm-hmm. so it, it could be they could just go to back to the same flower every day and there's like mm-hmm. a new fresh supply um but i'm not really sure if they have signals that i mean they, they very well could have signals I, uh, be like all right this one's done i think i have an answer for that i think i uh heard on my one of my science podcasts that uh um it's like ele- an electromagnetic energy thing where like everything like stores electromagnetic energy over time. And so flowers will like have it. And then if something had landed on it recently, it like disperses the energy. And so the bees can see if a flower has recently been landed on because there's less electromagnetic energy. And so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So it's some, one of those things where they're seeing a different world than, than we're seeing. I wish that we could put on like bee glasses. Yeah. Or take a bee pill. A bee pill. (laughs) I recently bought an ultraviolet flashlight. (laughs) to just to go out in the garden and you know just look at the flowers and i and it's super cool you know like it's kind of just like having a black light out there um but i made the mistake of bringing it in the house and like looking around (laughs) (laughs) it's like someone was murdered there yeah bring it in the bathroom (laughs) yeah oh Oh, man uh yeah i guess for uh for those who who don't know uh chris also not only does he have bees but you have like a really epic like flower garden and you and your wife grow flowers and then sell them to in bouquets to weddings all across the state of colorado yeah that's kind of how we got into it was i was already into growing um we both worked at a flower farm for a short period of time um she stephanie runs a local flower wholesaler so she sells flowers for about 20 farms across the front range of colorado uh, but we kind of fill in the spaces of what the farmers don't have so we we do kind of try to grow as much as we can um and yeah yeah the, the and so your honey it. your honey is like from the flowers like in your direct yard you know like i know there's like there's wildflower honey there's orange blossom honey it's your honey is like honey. the whatever <laughs> you decided to throw in your yard that year is, is that Primarily, your yard yeah, flowers they, they do go, they do fly. They say from anywhere from two to three miles out. So you really don't have a lot of control over what they're, where they're going. Um, I have read some crazy stories uh, just about like, I think there was like an M&M factory that was like, you know, dumping red dye, you know, that they use for their M&Ms into the water nearby. So that was like a water source from four, four bees. So they would like basically take this red water back and like the honey would have like a red tinge to it or something like that. M&M honey. That sounds like there's, you could do cool things with that. Uh, but it's maybe unethical to force bees to eat. Well, speaking of the genocide of bees that Chris is managing to create these small amounts of honey. No, just kidding. I mean, it is so crazy to think of how little, 
honey really a single bee well, of course you can't really look at it as like a single thing because it is this hive mind um but as you mentioned i mean just i'm um, a minute amount is really produced by each bee um one fact that i'm seeing in the doc here mike one 10 ounce jar of honey means 683 bees must fly roughly 33,000 miles to gather almost six pounds of nectar from 1,200,000 flowers, roughly. Uh, a hive of bees will fly over 55,000 miles to make one pound of honey and can create 100 pounds of honey in a year. So that's actually pretty crazy that a hive wow. can create that much. That's nuts. It, it- it kind of depends on the location. I think mm-hmm. um, we have a short growing season here in Colorado. So, I mean, I'm sure the one, the hives out in California or for any, any further South, uh, you know, you can just keep going, you know, throughout the winter, um, just keep making honey and keep making honey and get more out of it. Yeah. Cause you're in Colorado, as you said, so it gets pretty cold, but the bees are able to just self-regulate and just be just hanging out there kind of dormant. For how long? Yeah. I mean, for example, tonight we're getting a crazy cold front. It's supposed to be like negative 15 tonight. Whoa. So, which is not normal for Denver, Colorado. Um, but yeah, they, they'll make it through. I'll, I'll kind of, I'll throw up some, some plywood around to try to create like a wind block and maybe put some like, you know, a blanket over the hive or something like that. Just <laughs> tuck, a tuck them in. Tuck them in. <laughs> put a stuffy yeah, in yeah, there. You, you, in general, you're, you're much more likely to, you know, heat up a hive too much and kill them mm-hmm. rather than, you know, um, the other way around. So they, they, you know, they do their thing. They, they stay warm. Two other crazy dosed things about just the development of um, behavioral observation. Like scientists have taken the waggle dance concept and really honed in on the skill set of bees and been able to, to study them further and really shown some really crazy things, um, especially since we're looking at like a poppy seed. That's how big these brains are of, of these bumblebees. But um, one really crazy thing that they've been able to do is teach them to play football like score a goal, give them these balls and have them actually not just mimic the behavior of receiving the sugary treat to to move a a ball into a goal, but to actually adapt and make their behavior better. So they aren't just mimicking, they are improving their own behavior based (laughs) based on just them being super fucking smart. Um, another really crazy study that came out recently, a couple of years ago, is that honeybees are capable of arithmetic. They show proficiency oh, oh. in addition and subtraction. They are capable of numerical skills and short-term working memory that have only previously attributed to the larger brains of other vertebrates. Um, really insane stuff. Read it. Um, it's in Cosmos magazine. The other study that I was looking at is in nature.com. Um, it's a really dosed ass study when you really break this down. I mean, I'll just read just a, a quick part of it and then we'll get to some calls here. 14 trained honeybees were further exploring this numerical cognition um, where they basically learned how to use blue and yellow as symbolic representations for addition and subtraction. And they used this arithmetic to solve unfamiliar problems. So it shows that like bees can just be far removed from any of their skills that you described earlier, like their set skills that they know in nature instinctively. They can like learn all these new tasks that just were totally unknown before. Um, 
Whoa. These blue and yellow stimuli were comprised of a number of shapes in this Y-shaped maze in the study, and the bees flew into an atrium called the decision chamber and chose between two possible options. If the initial stimulus was blue, the bee had to choose the option that contained one less element, signifying subtraction. If the stimulus was yellow, they did the opposite to represent addition, and the correct choice was a sugar reward. And basically in more than 100 trials with 108 different patterns for addition and 108 patterns for subtraction, um, the bees chose the correct option 75% of the time, which is obviously well above just random chance yeah. and it shows that that this is obviously you know the numerical cognition is present in this tiny poppy seed shaped brain of a honeybee you even could, just singularly yeah that's wild you could uh if you train a lot of bees you could turn a bee colony into like a supercomputer you know teach yeah, them like fuck, binary fuck the neural the, network the What's blue that? and yellow could be a one and a zero <laughs> and they could learn like complex binary code this should be our ai yeah, I think uh, actually, <laughs> I guess that's we would just be teaching them to just do what a microchip does, and which is probably that's a lot easier. <laughs> it would just be cool. Um, it would just be cool. We don't, to, have, to, we don't have to mine the Pacific. Though. Yeah, right. <laughs> have a big bee computer, a bee right. computer. Yeah, yeah, it'll just be a giant uh, warehouse of bees that are like your hard drive. Um, <laughs> oh yeah. So touch before, on that, yeah, before, to touch on the bumblebee yeah, thing real quick, I think part of that study was to see. Exactly what they're well. Basically, what they what they came up with is that bumblebees move these balls around just out of play. They're just entertaining themselves too. Mm. That's, That's insane. Really cool. Which That's is so crazy. crazy. <laughs> to me that they're just like, you know, they're just like, all right, let's play with this ball. For right. What the fuck? That's <laughs> nuts, man. Um, before we wrap it up and get to some calls, or I guess let's wrap it up with you talking about how how to be a beekeeper yeah we I have mean, uh, some advice we do have a, oh yeah we do have a caller on the line um who's going to talk to us about colony collapse oh, yeah. Should a we little get to bit that first? yeah yeah but um okay. yes so chris don't go anywhere because we want to hear okay. in closing um you know also if you have comments on this but also we want you to give advice to people who are interested yeah. in uh being lording over a different queendoms of bees uh, but we're going to bring on the line right now james uh james reached out early on when we said we were doing an episode on bees because he's got a lot of a knowledge about colony co collapse uh james uh where are you calling from again and uh thank you for for joining us for this discussion hey yeah um can you hear me well uh, you're a little I, you sound low. like you're talking through like a pillow or something but uh, maybe this is a little better that's a little better. Cool. Um, calling from Olympia, Washington. Nice. You are still very faint. Uh, are you on your speaker? Yeah, yeah. Let me... Just get a little bit closer to the... Let me kill... Oh, there you, there go. you go. Whatever that was. Oh, heck yeah. You, you took got off out your of the panic, the yeah. panic room. <laughs> no, I'm back in the panic room, but I'm off the Bluetooth. There oh, you there you go. Okay, yeah, sweet, sweet, sweet. You don't trust that yeah. tech. All right, man. Hey, I'm really happy but, that you uh, you want to talk about this because this is a really important component of this discussion. So have at it, man. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I am a stormwater inspector. I'm really passionate about biodiversity. And what is a what is a stormwater inspector? So there's all sorts of um, regulations about where rain should go, how it should be. Um, collected and infiltrated into the groundwater so that it doesn't create floods, um, so that it improves water quality. Um, 
And so I inspect privately maintained um, stormwater facilities. And basically, it rains all the time. I'm in Western Washington, so we get really consistent rain. And the two main things among all the other water quality elements of it are preventing floods and then dealing with erosion. So sediment is the number one pollutant that ends up in waterways. Just, you know, if you picture opening up an acre of land for construction process, if it rains and an eighth of an inch of that acre of dirt gets displaced, then you're down or donating 25 tons of soil to your local municipality. And so, so much of like streams and, um, and rivers and so on and so forth, it gets disrupted as dirt right. gets displaced. Right. And so, right. so many of these stormwater facilities are just big, dry grass fields. And so you have this depression in the grass or this swale or this ditch that's grass lined. And the grass does a really good job of slowly letting the water percolate, but also doing a little bit of filtering as well as water's traveling down. Um, and right. so what, and, and, and so how did this lead to your, your bee knowledge? Because those big grassy areas, you know, half the time they're half full of water. That's a retention pond. Half the time they're dry. Um, they are hugely underutilized green spaces. And so, you know, if, if you just need to have a pit somewhere to capture water for that once every 10 year storm event, you know, why just stop at Kentucky bluegrass? You know, why not have that as a native meadow instead? You know, if all you need to do is make sure there's not, uh, a grassy or an obstruction in the pipes, then you can use that space as, you know, maybe selected habitat for an endangered butterfly species. Maybe, um, you know, just having a whole bunch of clover so that bees can, can go to town. Um, right. And so there's a lot of parallels. Um, but my, my dosed moment, if you will, from, uh, from bees came when I was with, environment washington so they were doing this this fundraising thing where i would go in front of like a grocery store and stop and be like hey do you have a moment to save the bees or do you have a moment to save the butterflies and really what we were trying to do is raise money for policy to try to get monsanto chemicals banned right um specifically neonicotinoids uh which are, they basically drive the navigation abilities of bees haywire. Um, it's a common insecticide to try to keep, you know, the types of insects that disrupt crops from um, doing their thing. Why, then, why are neonicotinoids so much worse than other pesticides? Like, what is it specifically about them that causes bees to go so haywire? Well, they're just engineered to disrupt... Right the neurological process of insects. Oh, so, that's oh my God. Yeah. And so that's, you know, they, they work well. 
Um, but so, it's, so every insect that drives basically makes them insane. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah, I like uh, how they. I like how they're like, oh, it's up for debate. What what is causing, causing this? Co- and it's like collapse, hmm, maybe yeah. it's these crazy ass pesticides that and are, you are yeah. producing in mass. And, and how like is this like kind of the standard? Is this used just like everywhere? So it's banned in Europe. Okay. Um, well, it's had various policy back and forths in the U.S., um, but it is open to be used. Um, there's some state level bans and county level bans which help but colony collapse disorder is complicated it's beyond just pesticides like Mm. you know there's invasive mites which um, get into beehives and interrupt the um, the growth of a larva Um, they will you know wake them up in the winter time and they'll buzz around looking for flowers and then they end up sol um Bees are kind of similar to coral in that way, where like it's not just sunscreen with coral, it's not just ocean acidification, it's not just ocean warming, it's just a combination. And it just right. so happens that bees are one of the most visible insects to human processes. So we notice bee populations declining, but it's all the way from earthworms to grasshoppers to right. butterflies. Um, you know, monarch butterfly is another kind of standard bearer. It's like the the bald eagle of the butterfly world in that it's in all 48 lower states and um, is somewhat iconic. And so the, the issue with monarch butterflies is milkweed. Milkweed is what they lay their eggs on. It's where they get most of their pollen, it's what their caterpillars eat, and it's a weed. And so we spray glyphosate um, Roundup to try to kill it. Another Monsanto. Nice. Yeah. Um, And so on the conservation side, the thing that I really, really want to get across is that so many pollinators like bees, like butterflies, like hummingbirds, bats, fly. And so they don't need this huge contiguous conservation area. They need gas stations. They need pollinator gardens, just, you know, a few of them in every acre. And so that's where, Mm. you know, you can have a a native plant garden in your backyard or heck, even, you know, honeybees are generalists. So they will go after, you know, if it blooms, they're on it. Um, and so the, the thing about honeybees is that they're also introduced, um, you know, that's the Eurasian honeybee, which came over with the, um, the Mayflower. And so they are here and they're naturalized and, you know, there's no getting rid of them and they're hugely important to our agriculture. Um, but then there's also all sorts of endangered pollinators that are um, co-evolved with certain plants. Certain flowers have certain butterflies where they're both endangered now because they're hard to find each other. And so in in my world, um, in my professional world, one of my 
goals is just allowing bees to have a chance to outlive humans in terms of our geological, you know, lifespan. Um, and that's where, you know, honeybees are just in North America and they're super effective at pollinating. And so honeybee conservation is hugely important, even if they're not um, native. Right. And I like I, I like what you said about because, you know, we we're trying to encourage people this episode to like, you know, if they feel that they can to like make their own beehives like our friend Chris has done. But I like your point that you can still support the bee population. You don't have to have your own beehive if you just plant like some a bunch of native plants. If you can just have like a little. Yeah. If you can just have a little plot where you're putting in some native flowers and plants like that itself is is having a huge contribution to to bee health. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the most important elements of, um, of all of this, I would say, is the life in the margins. So you look at roadside ditches, you look at um, just transformers that have a tuft of plants that are overgrown around the base, or those areas under those huge power lines that are just the no tree zone. You know, these are the if if the world goes in its direction that it's going, then those are going to be the last wild spaces. You know, that's going to be the last places that you find fox and you find sparrows, insects. And those are just, you know, you can try to keep insects away from those spots. You can try to keep frogs out of stormwater ponds and you're going to fail. And so there's just conservation areas that we have at our fingertips that if we adjust how we look at them, then, you know, we can do things like not mow during the bloom cycle. Mm -hmm. Like in Washington, um, in a lot of municipalities, you're not allowed to operate lawnmowers um, municipally in the summertime because of the risk of forest fire. And that's perfect for bees. And so that's we're just already accidentally doing a good conservation um, best practice there. Whoa. James, I have a quick question. I mean, I, I've been looking at I've been I've been studying colony collapse for years, man. Um, no, I mean, I've just been hearing about how serious this issue is for years. And it seems like it ebbs and flows in terms of the severity of colony collapse. I remember hearing back in 2015 that like almost half the bee colonies had collapsed. And I was like, okay, so this is like the number one issue in America right now. Like, why don't we have like a war against colony collapse disorder? Because this against is... Against lawnmowers. No one's <laughs> allowed to mow their lawn. Like, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, when you're looking at how instrumental bees are to for agriculture, like you're saying, we need bees. Like, we absolutely need bees, and it's going to completely devastate our agricultural sector and just the way that we have food right and and the variety of food so what is the status of colony collapse now i know that you said neonicotinoids are now um i don't know if they're less available now or being less distributed because of this obvious connection but at, you know of course it's climate change as well and how serious would it be if this continues if this trend continues to rise so ebb and flow is a good word for it a lot of the research going on right now is determining, okay, we have these four different hives and different um, 
areas of um, temperate temperature zones and so on and so forth do the mites that are affecting the hives fall the mite fall do they die off in different circumstances better and so we're we're looking at the different specific causes um like there's um pesticides that research in 2022 came out has shown that it disrupts the bee dance and that it makes the royal jelly less um less effective at producing strong queens and so we're learning more about the specific causes and those might turn into policy changes um but it's still a significant problem um you know I I was talking to somebody last week who had bees on their house and somebody came through and applied herbicide on the roadside ditch out front of her house and all of their bees died and so there's a lot of unknowns and it's still a very fragile um situation and in terms of just the ramifications of it you know California almond production is massive to the point where you're seeing people with bee colonies being solicited all the way out to Michigan throwing their their beehive boxes on semi trucks to go down to California just to pollinate the crop um you know there was a news story the hell yeah, yeah just like almost how many almonds do we need in the US are being used in in California agriculture and so can they just make their own bees out there <laughs> so a big big part of the issue in California is there's so many fewer trees and there's just mm. the fewer trees you have the less hydration there is in the landscape um so we've been dehydrating the landscape and you know desertification is affecting insects just as much as it's affecting plants and so you know one of the big benefits of saving bees is rehydrating the landscape because if you can have more plant propagation you have more retention of that moisture Right and um I want to get uh Chris back online here in a second to get your uh your thoughts on this stuff and also I know you have a lot of mites experience that maybe you want to share also but James before we we go back to Chris um I want you to stay on the line uh also but uh what are the, like the big things people should know if, if they care about trying to influence policy on this like what are the big what is the uh the motivation that people need or like what's the what's the thing people should focus on if they're trying to you know kind of help this situation on a political level um local local mm-hmm. local you know shop with your wallet um and actually this is not policy but an interesting anecdote is that if you have allergies like if you get seasonal allergies because of all the pollen in the air if you eat local honey it mm-hmm. will inoculate you to a lot of those allergens that's incredible um, and so you know the more you can um vote with your wallet the more you can advocate for um you know department of transportation policies to have local highways be um pollination corridors you know there's just so much infrastructure that is vegetated there's mm-hmm. just so much vegetation that's just there 
And so you can kill your lawn. You can replace your lawn with a, a meadow of clover and coreopsis and all this, you know, ground cover that pollinates. Um, you can obviously vote for politicians that um, that support the environment. Don't, but don't like, work for Monsanto. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and that's where, you know, if you're if you're trying to cut out Roundup, you know, if you're a business that uses herbicide, you can use a, a generic one instead, or you can use one that is based on clove oil that doesn't use chemicals. Um, I like the rewilding concept because I think that's the easiest and most fun thing that people can do because the lawn is such this weird archaic concept that just is you know that just matched with this suburban sprawl and it's just it's actually hideous and not only are yeah. we incurring this really severe drought but it's just not attractive i mean it would be so cool the golf to course have lawn yeah <laughs> the, the funeral green. home lawn um it would just be so cool to just have really wild like literally just let shit take over i mean not just be one of those neighbors that has like a fucking you know 10 feet of weeds but i mean <laughs> those have really... fallen <laughs> But I mean, just, yeah, I mean, the rewilding concept of just whatever's native and embracing that and cultivating that and the bees will come, baby. The bees will come if you build it. They One more come. thing before I. Yeah. Whoop, hold on. Hey, oh, sorry. Hey, James, I just lost you for a sec. Hold on. I'm going to put you back on. Sorry. I didn't mean it. I was just trying to mute you when you weren't talking because we uh, <laughs> were getting a lot of background noise. Anyway, oh, so, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I dropped a microphone that I'm not using that I bought that I thought would be effective at this, but it was not. Um, but I have a, a friend, um, kind of a, a consigliere of mine, who focuses on guerrilla gardens, guerrilla as in guerrilla warfare, where yes. he will, any dirt spot that he sees in the city, he keeps seeds on his person and he will just propagate some native wildflowers, you know, squish it into the dirt with his shoe. And then, you know, it rains, it propagates and you have a dead space. That's now a green space that can support flying pollinators. You know, you know I don't know that's if you, uh, cool one of idea. our first episodes was with uh, Joey Santori, who is a gorilla gardener as well and he actually goes and like plant straight up plants trees and parks that like aren't that he <laughs> yeah, doesn't have the, the authorization to do and so there's like all these parks that have these big ass trees that like he just went and like actually the problem is you need like, rain and unfortunately here in los angeles we don't get much but mike maybe one day we'll be living in the pacific northwest and that is such a cool idea to just carry seeds on you all the time and just to do your small part i really like that a lot um, there's a lot of things that we can do, even though we don't really have much effect on policy on a national level. And these things are just fun and, you know, you are capable of doing them. Yeah. And I mean, they can be, um, you can wear a, a rebellious mask on your face as you're doing it. You can feel like you're sticking it to the man by killing your lawn and, you know, thumbing your nose at the, the way society is supposed to look like. Well, I, uh, I like the, the always having a seed packet on you to throw on, uh, yeah. throw on some. So James, we really appreciate you contributing uh, to this episode and bringing your expertise. I, I know it was helpful to our listeners and uh, we really enjoyed it as well. Um, uh, stay there in case we want to come back to you, but Chris, we want to get you back on One of the things that uh, there's a couple things that um, James said that 
reminded me of stuff I wanted to ask you, Chris. But one of them, just in terms of like, you know, it's it's one thing to talk about like lawn rewilding, and we've talked about that with our, I think, episode number three with with Joey. Um, but like, it seems kind of intimidating to be like, oh yeah, rewild, go rewild your lawn. Like, what the fuck do you do? But you, your lawn, you you've done that. Like, and every season it's different. Like, you've just you just have all these wildflowers growing, seemingly like it's just like a a jungle, but there's a an order and a structure to it. But you know, how did you how did you do that? Like, decide to how did you turn your lawn, which is just a normal backyard, into like this very magical like flower wilderness? It's 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 actually really easy. Uh, I mean, here it's pretty dry in Colorado, so you definitely want to have an irrigation system set up. Um, what we did was kind of just, you know, planted some flowers that we like. Uh, nowadays, when I'm planting new stuff, I'm, I'm planting it with specifically the bees in mind. We grow basically the fun stuff in the back. In the front yard, we grow flowers that Stephanie sells through the collective. Um, but yeah, there, we have a, I have a couple flower beds that I just dedicate to whatever receives, you know, whatever makes it, you know, I'm not going to try to baby anything, you know, if it makes it, it makes it, if it receives, it receives, um, kind of just like you said earlier, just like any, any brown space, any, any space you got, you just throw a perennial in there, see if it, see if it takes, um, if it does cool, if not, you know, try something else next year, um, and to add to what James was saying, uh, buy local, like definitely go to, instead of going to Home Depot's and, you know, when you're planting your garden in the spring, don't go to Lowe's. And if you do ask what's treated with what, and that'll, you know, hopefully climb the chain so that the, the buyers of those products for these big chains can, you know, at least get it in their ear that people aren't buying because they're being treated with the neonicotinoids. But yeah, go to local nurseries, uh, support local and they are, you know, definitely more likely to not be treated with harmful chemicals. Um, but yeah, uh, I've noticed that a lot of the herbs that I grow in the backyard, uh, the bees love them. Mm. Like uh, lemon balm, any type of mint. I have like apple mint. I have mountain mint. I have uh, chocolate mint back there. Uh, the oregano. The oregano is probably like the number one choice of the bees. So you know, just throw some stuff in the ground, see if it grows. If it does, you, you have some herbs that you can use for cooking and whatnot. And then you're also feeding the bees in the neighborhood. And how do you deal with insect infestation on your flowers and herbs and stuff? And bees. <laughs> so, and on your bees. Yeah, and on your the, bees. With the mites that James is speaking of, they're, uh, the, the, the number one uh, uh, mite in, in a beehive is called a varroa mite. Um, they're very harmful. Like they'll basically kill out hives if you don't treat them. So, um, you basically want to treat, there's three different types of treatments and you buy these at, at different stores. There's, there's ways to do it as well without, you know, you know, uh, spending too much money. Like one technique is you can, you can literally sprinkle like powdered sugar all over the inside of the hive and, what they'll do is the bees will just be covered in powdered sugar. So they'll, they'll start cleaning themselves off. And in that cleaning of the powdered sugar, they're also, you know, hopefully taking mites off and just dropping them down onto the bottom. That's not going to kill them all. That's I don't advise just doing that. There are uh, three different types of mite treatments. One they're uh, they're either like acids, one's formic acid, which is the acid that red ants use to sting you. So they basically make these like, little pads that you like little strips 
full of uh, formic acid that you just lay on top inside the hive on top of the frames and how they work. And they, they, all the treatments, they're very similar. One, one is a vapor. Um, you, you, they, it's a little tool called a vaporizer and you just stick it in the hive with a different chemical in there. Basically, basically the, the concept of it is it's a foreign object inside the hive and it's a foreign object that specifically is toxic to the mites and not toxic to the bees at certain temperatures. So there's definitely certain times of the year when you cannot do these things. Um, spring and fall are probably the best times to do them, but how it works basically is the bees, they see the foreign object, they'll go up to this strip of formic acid and th- their job is to clean it out. So in the process of them taking all these little molecules of formic acid, they drag it through the hive and hopefully come in contact with mites and it'll kill the mites. Cool. And by them cleaning out their hives, you're, you're basically treating your hive for mites. So, so that's the way to responsibly do it is definitely treat for mites. You, you'll hear people, Oh, I've had a hive in my backyard for years. I don't do anything with it. You know, it just, it's a, and then it died one day. It's like, yeah, no shit died. <laughs> Um, and, yeah, be responsible. Process, yeah, be responsible. Be careful. Yeah, <laughs> and be responsible. And process, if, if you're not, if you're not treating hives for mites, you're also spreading the problem because the, mm. your bees are going to go to other people's hives or other people's like feeding stations or flowers, and just you know, mites will just jump from oh, from one to another, and then it'll affect it'll negatively affect everyone else in the neighborhood. Well, Chris, let's close this out by telling people how they can be. They're beekeepers. beekeepers. <laughs> how to learn what to buy? Um, how to and and also just how much time is really required for this kind of thing. So it was really easy to get into. Um, I got involved. Like I said, we were going to do chickens, and that we kind of threw that that out the window because we didn't want to be married to them. We didn't want to like you know have someone feed them when we go on vacations, yada yada. So. I would just happen to be walking my dogs at a park and there was a sign that said beekeeping class. It was like a cheap little, you know, intro class. I think it was like $12, maybe 45 minutes long, but I left that with a lot more questions that I had answers. So then that kind of caused me to actually look up like a proper certified class. And if you're in a, you know, a a bigger city, you're going to have a handful of beekeeping stores, supply stores around you. And at least one of them is going to offer classes. And I know you can just find them online too, but definitely take a class. Um, There's different little techniques that you could do for different microclimates here and there. There, if you just, you know, search online, you're not, you, you might not find something that's, that's very important for your area. If you just look at books, there, there are a handful of books that are out there too. Um, but definitely take a local class and that will get you everything you need to know. Um, and did you buy, classes. did you build your own hive? No, I bought it. Yeah. Uh, you can buy, you know, basically just, um, it comes with the smoker. It comes mm-hmm. with, the actual boxes, they're called supers. Um, it comes with the frames. It comes with the suit. You can get the, you know, the pants. If, oh, if not. Yeah. You can, you know, you get the, you get the tools. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a little bit of an expensive front and the first year you'll definitely be going down a rabbit hole uh, with it. <laughs> I did. And I was talking to everybody about it. I was bartending at the time and little did I know that all the other people that worked with me were like making fun of me. Stop talking about bees. <laughs> there's a fucking bee guy uh, well finally you uh were given the platform you deserve 
to talk about right. things, not this annoyed <laughs> people at the bar. Please stop. <laughs> well, we, yeah, I mean, sure. we loved hearing you talk about bees when we were, I mean, that was the inspiration for this whole episode. So those, uh, those <laughs> losers, wherever you were working. They don't understand bees, man. <laughs> they don't get it. But in addition to taking classes, there's local groups, local clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, Rocky Mountain Bee Association is one around here. They have meetings. So it's very easy to meet people. <laughs> um, I wouldn't yeah. go I, in the bee community. Uh, you, find, <laughs> you can find a mentor, uh, you know, just one person that gets you get your hands on on, on a hive, really. Because I, how I did it, I took a class. They they don't you know they don't you're not in the hive. You're not you're not dealing with live bees until right. you get them on your own. And the first time you do it is definitely exhilarating. But right. if you can find, <laughs> find somebody that does it, you know, you can go over their house. And and I'm always looking for people to help me. Just um, you know, just you need two two hands, two sets of hands on it sometimes. So it's it's easy to find a mentor. But yeah, those three ways, uh, it's it's really easy to get into. It's amazing, Chris. Um, do you sell your honey online? I don't. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, it's just you guys. Oh, just man. you guys and us. And, okay. uh, no, I, I do sell it, but I basically just I, I don't have an issue with selling out. And I only get so much. I, I have a couple friends that are into, you know, brewing and they want, you know, a lot for making mead or something like that. I don't I don't have that quantity. So I don't really have the need to get sh- shelf space anywhere or yeah. sell it online. But yeah, because cultivating it, it's a whole other facet of this oh, yeah, like pretty it's, complicated it's not just you like scoop it up and jar it i mean least favorite part of the whole hobby <laughs> it's, it's it's a mess honey so um, sticky yeah it sucks <laughs> so the idea is, is getting a bunch of friends involved and having them all do it right <laughs> oh i'm mentoring you i'm mentoring <laughs> you yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um well if people want to follow your gardening and beekeeping you have an instagram for your garden it's at garden of distraction with underscores between before and after of so garden underscore of underscore distraction we're going to link to it in the show notes if you just look into the description and um do you want to plug steph's uh, little flower business also in case people are in um, colorado want to get some flowers you know to be honest um i appreciate it but she probably wouldn't want that just because it is a wholesale <laughs> only and oh, okay. she only sells to florida doesn't need you don't need to sell your honey she doesn't need to sell her flowers yeah, you guys well, are good yeah, you guys yeah, are all set I apologize, but <laughs> what what we get a lot with that is the random husband trying to get out the doghouse coming in oh i need a bouquet <laughs> and we don't do that it's it's strictly wholesale uh, but much appreciated yeah well, definitely follow the Instagram, get inspired. I hope this chat inspired you to be a responsible, be conscious. <laughs> How many be things can we make? I know. I, I, it, you can go <laughs> down the rabbit hole there. But um, Every, Chris, everywhere that starts with a B. <laughs> Chris, it was really fun to put on that B outfit and um, explore that hive. And I hope to do it again soon. And um, it was awesome to talk to you, man. I mean, such a dosed episode. Bees are just such an incredibly fascinating species and we have so much to learn from them and hopefully they can survive longer than we are around on this earth as james said that that should be our goal to keep the bees alive baby keep them going yeah much much appreciated thanks for uh, uh it's my pleasure showing it off and my pleasure talking about it and thanks for popping my podcast cherry <laughs> <laughs> thank you man we'll uh we'll talk to you soon sounds good Thank you, everyone, for joining us 
on this episode of Dose. Abby, any parting words for the new year? Be good. <laughs> Be well. Be happy. Thank you.